Guy Adami here, folks. Welcome back to On The Tape. It's Friday, February 19th. I'm back with my dear friends, Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Today, we're going to be talking about crypto. Remember, we had a great interview last week with Meltem and BK. We're going to talk about rising rates and what it means for equities. Equities have been pausing. And later, we'll be going off the tape in an interview with Themis Trading, Sal Arnuk and Joe Saluzzi about market structure and a breakdown of the Reddit Robinhood GameStop hearing on Capitol Hill. But first, guys, I got to start with inflation. I don't want to get wonky here, but I think inflation is the buzzword. And it comes in the form of the retail sales number we saw this past week. It was, in a word, extraordinarily hot. And we've seen interest rates go from 53 basis points in the 10-year in August up to north of 1.3%. Now, Dan is going to make fun of me. He's going to OK Boomer my ass in a little while and say it's not a big deal Rates are still low. I would push back and say they're still low, but the momentum of the move and the significance of the move can't be underestimated. At a certain point, it's going to be negative for equities. Now, people will say rising rates, falling dollar, really bullish for the equity market, got to stay in the game. I will say at a point, it's all going to flip. And I think we're precariously close to that point in the form of 10-year yields. We get up towards 1.5%. This entire story breaks down, in my opinion. And we're headed there, folks. You talk about a Federal Reserve that's put everything they can into this thing for the last 12 years, hoping to get inflation. Well, be careful what you wish for, Danny Moses, because inflation is here in spades. They just choose not to measure it. Right. I think the biggest thing, which is coming out, I think, March 17th, the next Fed meeting, where they give quarterly estimates, something called the dot plot. And what is the dot plot? Whoa, 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 whoa. You're dot plotting me this early in this podcast? (laughs) Help me out here, Danny. So the Fed has 19 members that actually vote on a dot plot. I think it's the 12 governors and then another seven, you know, advisory people that are on the Fed, whatever. And every three months, they come out with their three-year estimate on where Fed funds will be. And if you go back and look in December, most of the dots were kind of around the same area, not much growth at all. They're all kind of huddled into the zero range. Well, it's only going to take one or two of these 19 people to start saying, you know what, maybe in 2022, Fed funds will be at 50 bips or 75 basis points or something like that, or 0.75%, however you want to talk about it. But if that happens, there are algorithms and funds set up to trade that. And you just made a point about retail sales. Of course, it was expected that retail sales were going to be better than expected. We're going to start to comp easier and easier as we come out of the COVID lockdown. And when the COVID lockdown started last year was about a year ago, exactly this time. So even though that was expected, that was a 10 basis point move in the tenure that day, this, earlier this week. And that's major. So dot plot, dot plot, we're, we're going to be hearing about that more and more. Yeah, I think it was interesting, though, when you talk about inflation and you talk about some of these comparisons and you talk about that retail sales number. You know, yesterday, Thursday, Walmart was off about six and a half percent. That's a massive move for a company of this size based on their earnings. And some yeah, of but the hold commentary. on, Dan. Listen, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you there and say, listen, it wasn't a function of necessarily how well they were doing. I think part of the move in Walmart was saying they're going to spend a lot of money. And I think that's what really caught people off guard. Now, you don't impugn the retail sales number on the back of that Walmart earnings, Dan Nathan. Wow, this is very un-Guyadami of you. You didn't even let me make my point yet, okay? So, you know, one of the issues that I was going to say is one. why did the stock sell off? That's spending. They're talking about wage inflation. They're talking about raising the minimum wage, okay? So that's one pressure on their earnings. Isn't that inflationary, Dan? Yeah, I just said that. Okay, guys, okay. So I just said that. And then the other thing I thought was a very interesting takeaway, though, is that the CEO, Doug McMillan, on 
on CNBC yesterday morning said that after the first round of stimulus that, that came out in the spring, they saw people spending that money as if they just got back a tax return, buying a flat screen TV or something like that. This time around, after the second bout of relief slash stimulus, they were seeing people spend more on lower priced items that were staples, which I think is really interesting. So one of the arguments that was being made in the market with rates rising this week on the strong data that we've seen is that maybe we don't need another $2 trillion in stimulus slash relief because that might really overheat the economy and and do what you guys are talking about with inflation that much more. That is the battle that's raging right now. But I think that data point from Doug McMillan is really interesting. What he's saying is, is that their customer, when you think about what a Walmart customer is, that is a customer that is receiving that stimulus right from the government that they are actually getting a bit stretched right now. So so I just think that's a really important takeaway. And stock market investors, you know, the fact that you're looking at a Walmart that's trading at a market multiple, we know that they've made massive inroads, right, on e-commerce sales over the last nine months or so that investors are not willing to reward that right now. I think that's a really important thing for uh, equity market investors. Yeah, no, listen, and I appreciate that, Dan. And I'm sorry to jump on you. I'm all caffeined out here and I just wanted to get in. I'm all, I'm, I'm fired up today, Dan. And by the way, you mentioned McMillan. You might not remember Tom McMillan was a great senator, played in the NBA, tall guy. I used to see him at Georgetown every once in a while. And Jim McMillan, of course, the Knicks traded for him late in his career. Great corner jump shot, but he sucked with the Knicks. But I completely digress. But I want to mention one other thing, Dan Nathan. You know, at a certain point, I think you would agree. Everybody talks about this economy heating up. I would submit maybe to Danny Moses that a, a stronger economy is actually negative for the stock market, as counterintuitive as that might sound. Well, I want to make one other comment to Dan's point on Walmart, and I think this is really key. So oil prices, while it's great for the energy sector, have a direct impact on that Walmart customer. They're actually, you know, you're $62 a barrel or wherever we are at this point. And if gas prices go up. That's money right out of the pocket of these people, of everybody, but especially these people. And way back when, when I was institutional equities broker, we had an analyst, Howard Penny, who had a chart about McDonald's. And McDonald Big Mac, it was called the Big Mac something. There was a Big Mac economic indicator. When the price of oil went up, it meant that the average Joe had less money in their pocket after filling up. And so they would buy one Big Mac instead of two or something like that. We're at the point right now where that's having a direct impact. So I wanted to comment on that first. We're talking about data, and I'll let you get back to it, Danny, is that, you know, we just saw the continuing claims numbers. They ticked up, you know what I mean? So there's still, and Guy has used this expression a lot. I mean, you know, for for most of America or for maybe, you know, 20% of America, things are really, really bad out there, right? And so if you don't own assets, right, and you're not seeing home appreciation and you're not able to take money out of your house because 30-year mortgage rates are at, you know, record lows, that sort of thing, um, you know, it's still really tough out there. And I think that's really important to kind of separate here. Can I just say one thing first to everyone listening out here in Texas? should have mentioned this at the outset. We're thinking about you and it's horrendous. And so I, I'm really sorry for what everybody's going through there. So I had no, to and I, th- that. I, yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I was just going to jump on the Ted Cruz bandwagon, but I'll, I'll let that go for another time. And Dan, I know you're a Stevie, are you a Stevie Ray Vaughan guy, Danny Moses, Dan Nathan? Oh just my God, yes or absolutely. no, binary answer. So that's yes. a yes from Danny Moses. Yes. Dan Nathan? Thumbs up, brother. Uh, you know something? There's no energy there. Let me tell you something. There was a great album from Stevie Ray Vaughan, if you recall. And one of the songs was Crossfire. And why do I bring this up, guy? I'll tell you why I bring it up. Because one of the lyrics, and this goes right to you, Dan Nathan, 
Money's tight, nothing's free. Won't somebody come and rescue me? But you know what, Dan Nathan? Money's not tight. Look what the credit spread's going on. Look what's going on with Peloton raising debt. I know you're all exercised about this, but that speaks to everything that I've been talking about for years. The Fed is throwing money at this market, and it's creating a a situation where people are moving further and further out the risk curve. The way that you measure credit spreads for everyone out there is if you take the duration of a treasury, let's call it a five-year or 10-year treasury, and you match it against the duration of the debt a company is issuing five or 10 years, it's called the credit spread. That's kind of how you look at it. Historically, longer-term credit spreads normally are about 5 to 6% difference between the two. We're currently at like 3.4%. Right when COVID hit, they obviously blew out to 10% for a period of time. And then what happens? The Fed comes in, and guess what they're doing? They're buying high-yield debt. Fed's got your back. Don't worry about it. Well, the Fed can lose control here. And I think what we're going to see and what we are seeing here, dot plot, dot plot, is that the Fed loses control, credit spreads will widen. People will actually be forced to sell high yield paper, which will cause a higher cost of financing for all these companies long term. And you got to watch it. It's at 340 right now. Go back and look at the charts. Dan's a chartist. Go back and look at the charts. Could it go lower? Sure, could go lower, but something's got to give here. So if treasuries move higher, Without high yield coupons moving up, you have a problem. So I think something's going to give, and I think everything is going to move up on the curve at the same time, and that's going to have an impact. So it's funny you, you talked about you know the cost of, of companies financing debt, and, and you know here, here's a company that um, obviously was a winner of the pandemic it was Peloton, and the, the the stock was trading in March at its lows below twenty. It topped out I think last month in January above one seventy. It's got a forty billion dollar market cap. I think it's interesting to note the stock is down twenty percent from its highs. It's down on the year. They just raised money through a convert. Initially, it was a zero coupon, half a billion dollars, 60% premium on the conversion, and they upsized it to nearly a billion dollars. So I would tell you that that is a huge, huge win for a company like Peloton that obviously knows that, you know, the kind of tailwinds that they had, it was kind of like lightning in a bottle for their business model. But to throw that sort of cash on their balance sheet is genius, right? For five years, that sort of thing. So, you know, I think there's obviously going to be a lot of benefits for companies that are being very opportunistic. And then on the flip side of that, though, and I know guys got something to say about this, this company, Microsoft, strategy, which was, you know, a meandering software company that uh, raised, I think, what, $650, $700 million in December through a convert and bought Bitcoin with it. And then they're hitting the, the convert markets again. I think they did a $900 billion zero coupon deal also to buy Bitcoin. This is no longer a software company. It is a Bitcoin proxy. So we're seeing two different sides of the spectrum as far as using this rate environment to be opportunistic by companies. If you're a company out there and you're not taking advantage of the credit markets or the equity markets for that matter, you're not doing your job. If you can issue stock at inflated prices, if you can issue debt at incredible prices, do it. I mean, let's think back to 2000. Amazon, you know, right when the dot coms were blowing up, issued a European convert, I believe, something like eight or nine hundred million dollars. I have to remember what it was. I don't know if Amazon survives without issuing that piece of paper that they did in 2000. It's so companies can self-fulfill that they're going to be around. And listen, you may not like where Peloton stock is trading, but by all means, 
go out and issue as much paper. That's cheaper than cost of equities. I got to tell you, Danny, I think that is probably one of the most important points that investors who have not been around for multiple cycles can, you know, the fact of the matter is, is Amazon.com lost 90% of its equity value from its highs in 2000 to its lows in 2002. And then it lost 65% of its equity value from the highs in 2007 to its lows in 2009. And when you talk about what they did in 2000. Now, it was interesting. I remember at the time, eyebrows or antennas went up because they had to do it in Europe. They didn't do it here in the U.S. And it's and maybe had is not the right word. Maybe they were being really opportunistic because they got better terms. There was more demand for it over there. But like it could be the difference between having to like, you know, having existential decisions to make when times are different. Yeah. And before we get into the crypto, where I'll address micro strategies. Number one, Dan Nathan, I'm really upset that you didn't give me any love in that Stevie Ray all right, By so you want to hear? No, so, I, no, I don't. Now I don't. Hold it's on, too late. hold on. So in 1990, when Stevie Ray died, I think it was a pl- was it a plane crash? Helicopter. He was, Helicopter. helicopter. And Eric Clapton was supposed to be on that plane also. Okay. Anyway, and I had just seen Eric Clapton on the Journeyman tour that summer at SPAC. Okay. So to me, I Saratoga. was all, Saratoga Performing Arts Center. I was all in on the Journeyman tour. And I remember that day you would only hear stuff on the radio or on the nightly news. And they didn't know for like a night whether he was on it because they didn't have the inner tubes. Right there, guy? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think Robert Cray was on that tour. And I think they were yeah, in Robert the was. State of Wisconsin, if I'm not mistaken. I got my ass kicked in Wisconsin once. But thank you. Uh, my Stevie Ray Vaughan reference was genius, by the way. I just want to sort of put it out there. And before we go, Dan, listen, as I mentioned, so much of this rally for big cap, for all these mega stocks that you coined two years ago, has been predicated in, in large part to this low interest rate environment. Interest rates are going higher. Multiples are going to come down. Does that affect the broader market at some point? I think it does. Well, listen, I mean, you know, when you think about it, there, there was a couple things going for these uh, mega cap tech stocks, or a lot of things going, obviously, and that's Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon. I mean, these guys have these massive moats. They already had these massive balance sheets. They had these ability to raise money, you know, like untold amounts of money, and they've just been buying back their stock for the most part, right? And so, you know, right now, one of the things that we haven't talked about, and I suspect we will be talking about it on this podcast over the next few months will be M&A, right? There's been so much SPAC M&A, a lot of, t- a lot of acquisitions that might have been tuck-ins for these major um, tech companies, but because of some of the regulatory guys that they're under, they're not able to do a lot of that. But that's, I think, coming to a theater near you. you know, so they benefited from this rate environment. I think more so you've seen multiple expansion in these names, right? So Apple was a great example of a company that organically, their earnings weren't growing particularly much. Their main product, which was maybe two-thirds of their sales, the iPhone, you know, on a unit basis, was flat for years. So this was a huge, you know, financial engineering story. So your point is that if rates start to rise, right, and the cost of them kind of servicing that debt and their ability to to kind of raise debt at the cheap levels and buy back their stock, you know, you're going to see, you know, investors start thinking twice about that. Um, So to me, I still think they end up being defensive names. You're seeing a rotation out of them right now into more cyclicals, into financials, into energy, that sort of thing. But I bet you uh, investors come back to them, especially after a period of underperformance and if the market were to correct. One of the things truly tied to interest rates are mortgage rates. And the housing data has been very strong. It's been a huge tailwind for the economy too. Everyone out there is 
whether they're moving out of cities into homes or moving states, which, you know, I could argue it's been nice down here in Florida. That could have a strength. You know, so wait a second. Hold on a second. That's just you being an asshole because, you know, Dan and I are here up north in the snow and you got I'm in Florida. It's really nice down here after this podcast. I'm going to go hit a few golf balls and I'm going to have whatever foo-foo drink you you're probably like an apple <laughs> martini guy knowing you nah so don't, i like what you did there anyway please continue no i was gonna say this you know what if you get those numbers and people will be like oh well why you know that'll that'll slow down the economy maybe maybe rates will come in i don't think rates are trading off that anymore and i and i know we're gonna have great guests on later that live through the stock market flash crash but let's keep in mind there was a fixed income bond flash crash in 2014 that the Fed still haven't figured out exactly what happened. It was a lot of proprietary trading and, and so forth. But that was a major. And by the way, that was on a bad retail sales number that caused the 10-year yields that day to drop, I believe, from 220 to 186 in a matter of, of an hour. So that was a big deal also. I know we're going to talk about the equity flash crash later. One thing I would say is that, you know, it's really interesting, you know, Danny, you talk about the inputs that a lot of these algos have about trading, whether it be rates or equities or that sort of thing, or just basically cross asset models. I mean, think about this. Think about the news flow that we've seen on the vaccines. And our friend Peter Bookvar, who hopefully will come on on the tape uh, with us, talks about this quite frequently. You know, I just get an alert from the Wall Street Journal today. Pfizer vaccine is highly effective after one dose and can be stored in normal freezers, you know. Like, so the the data is getting better and better about vaccines. There's another story in the journal this morning talking about we should be at 50% herd immunity by this point in the spring. And I think those are the sorts of headlines coupled with the fact that we know further stimulus is coming. Sarah Eisen on CNBC on the closing bell yesterday afternoon interviewed Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. And, you know, she's basically saying the risk to not going big on the stimulus far outweigh of, of doing too little. So that's coming, you know, and then the idea when you look at what's going on in Texas on the infrastructure front, right, and you say to yourself, oh, my goodness, this could be a bipartisan thing to do massive infrastructure. So maybe it is the fiscal stimulus and an infrastructure. And that is the Biden administration's basically, let's call it one legislative priority that they get before the midterms. And you have economy that's back to pre-pandemic levels. Guy will tell me, well, that doesn't mean the stock market is the economy, but at some point, if we're just going to kind of correct here and we're kind of re- okay to reset with valuations, listen, the rate thing, I got to push back for a second, okay? You guys are talking about one to one three, and on a percentage basis, that's huge. Go look at the 10-year chart of the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield, and you will see massive technical resistance between 1.4 and 1.5%. It's the 2012 low, the 2016 low, the 2019 low. It took a pandemic to break it. Everyone thought those were generational lows. They might be generational resistance levels from here on out. So you tell me, if, if interest rates go to 2% in the 10-year, and you're telling me that the dots start to change and there's going to be greater enthusiasm to kind of get off the zero interest rate bound from the Fed funds, okay, then equity risk premium is going to change. But until that happens, I think that you can kind of say that rates are going to stay low for a very long time. All right, Dan. But Guy will love this. Probably the greatest entertainer of all time, Prince. Uh, Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Guy is not in that camp. I'm going to tell you that right now. Guy, hold on. Let me finish. The guy was like Nostradamus, okay? Well, party like it's 1999, but more importantly which is what the market's been doing now for a long time, when doves cry. Because <laughs> I'm telling you right now, 
Dubs, the Fed's going to lose control of the long end of the curve here. They really, you know, they can do QE and buy and buy, but if they lose control, being the number one holder of those bonds, by the way, if they lose control of that, we have a real, real problem. And that's where the Fed bears or the people like Guy that are against the Fed care. And Guy, if you don't give a shout out to Prince, one of the greatest entertainers, if you can't separate, maybe you didn't, maybe you didn't love his music, but you have to appreciate and respect how incredible he was. But anyway, now, fair he, enough. A, a talented musician without question. Great guitar player. And right a great up actor. There. No, what? Oh, he was great. He's he talking was great about Purple, Purple Rain, Rain in 1983. Yeah. Uh, anyway. My God. Well, now you're pushing it. Listen, you know Dan, what? The next no time idea. you bring up a Godfather reference again for the 80th <laughs> time, you're going to hear from me. Oh, go all right. Ahead, fair Dan. enough. It's a, first of all, it hasn't been 80 times. It's been like two times. Yeah, but it? it is the same reference for a guy who's seen the first two movies, probably a combined 100 hours. Yeah, um, you know, I would just that. say that you could, times. Pro- you could probably spread out the, the quotes there a little bit. All right. We got yeah, a couple really hot topics to Hopefully, this we're going to do this for years. I got a lot of time left. I mean, I got a lot of quotes to throw out there. And listen, just before we go to Bitcoin, for all you Apple lovers out there, and don't at me, you got to own Apple. Apple's been so good to me. Over the last couple of years, you've seen peak to trough declines of anywhere from 25 to 35%. So Apple does go down. And oh, by the way, it might happen on the back of the rates going higher. Anyway, last week, we had a great interview with Meltem and BK. We talked all things crypto. They made fun of Dan. It was all. It was just a fun thing. We got a lot of feedback from our audience, so we have to talk it about again. Coinbase direct listing is coming, right? Binance, third largest cryptocurrency after Bitcoin and Ethereum. The market cap of Bitcoin, Danny Moses, this is right up your alley. The market cap of Bitcoin has just reached a trillion dollars. Is it for real? Well, it's as real as some of these other equity companies. The one run by Elon Musk, maybe that's trading up near trillion dollars. I give that a lot more. <laughs> a lot more credence than some of these companies that are out there. But listen, we're talking about here about inflation. We're talking about the debasing of the dollar. We're talking about gold losing market share to Bitcoin. It's not a crazy number when you think of it like that. And again, these institutions aren't going to relent. Every time there's a sell-off in Bitcoin, it feels like it goes from weak hands to strong hands. And again, I'm not going to try to put a target on it, but with, with the adoption and these companies, which are welcoming it now, not just onto their balance sheet, but into their businesses, it's self-fulfilling. So it's going right now. The only thing that could derail it probably from here is some talk of regulation or someone in the government making some noise about it. But I'll turn it over to Dan on that since he's the one that will get ripped for criticizing it. So Yeah, no, I always get ripped. I, I, listen, you know, what, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to like kind of think about these sorts of big concepts from from two different sides. I thought last week that was a, a really great conversation. BK, you know, is kind of like my crypto body man. He and I have been talking about it literally since 2013. He got me involved in it. And, you know, he's not only focused on these currencies or the tokens, he's really investing in a lot of the different protocols and in, in the companies. And he's really focused on DeFi. Meltem is is just one of those, I think, tremendous thinkers. She's, she's obviously an evangelist for the whole space. And so to have her and hear her emotion, I think that is fantastic. Some of the feedback we got, and I think it's really interesting because they do have two very different styles. She's very emotional about it. She is living it. BK is also living it, but he's also living it through the lens of someone who's been through some other market manias. And so make no mistake about it. You can love the fundamentals. You can love the long-term kind of picture of the disruption that this new technology is going to bring, but you don't also have to get caught up in the mania. 
And I'll just say this, and I think I said it on Fast Money last night, is that, listen, I've been in the markets. I started in 1997 at a hedge fund that was most focused on the shiniest things that were moving all of the time. And, you know, that was kind of just been what I've done for 25 years. And what is fast money? It's not slow money. It's fast money. We're talking about what happened today, what might happen tomorrow, and the things that are moving the most. And I'll just say this. Market manias are easy to identify. They're really hard to kind of pick a top on. But I think the really most important point I would say is that every market mania that I have seen, whether it be in an individual security or whether it be in a sector or whether it be in a broad market or a geographic region, they all fail every single one of them eventually. That doesn't mean they won't reflate. It doesn't mean that the long term of that asset or that market is somehow impugned. It may mean that. So Bitcoin may go to 12 trillion, which is the global reserve of gold right now at some point, but it also may fall 50, 60 or 70 percent at some point. So, you know, that, that's kind of my only point in a way. And hopefully we're going to have BK and Meltem back and talk about this. And hopefully our listeners will be able to hear about some of the concepts and some of the protocols and some of the companies that they may own the stock of that are going to be disrupted, whether it be in DeFi or some other decentralized protocols, because that's what we can do um, as people who are just not living and breathing it every day and kind of take a 30,000 view from it and and be critical when when we think it's appropriate. Hey, Dan, I think the point you made about gold, and I've I've liked the gold story. I've owned it since 1200, 1100. And I think every time Bitcoin comes up, people come up with a narrative of why it's up. But I do think that there is a real impact that gold is getting hit here because of people choosing Bitcoin. Now, i probably still point this point I'll get I'll get added or whatever boomer whatever guy calls it for saying that uh, I would own gold instead of Bitcoin I think you can own both but I do think you're having an impact and by the way all these companies that are buying Bitcoin maybe the gold miners should change a balance sheet a little bit to a little bit of Bitcoin and kind of hedge themselves out a little bit what do you think of that guy? yeah listen I think that if we went down that road that would be the death knell for them because that would be them throwing in the towel and by the way because I, I do this, this is what I like to do but Dan mentioned all the shiny things of course my mind goes to shiny happy people a song from out of time REM's 1991 Athens, Georgia. release Athens Georgia my birthplace Ex- what my other birthplace. band came from Athens Georgia by the widespread way widespread panic look B fifty twos. B fifty twos. Thank you very much. Dan Terrible. Nathan is rolling his eyes right now. Uh, I'm not. Just so you I know, Widespread Panic was the last live concert I saw before the pandemic. It was February twenty seventh, two thousand and twenty at the Beacon Theater. I was in the front row. It was just a jam fest. Freaking at the Beacon. Don't yeah. listen to any REM albums if you're depressed out there because oh, they're stop. just so depressing. Now, I mean, anyway, REM was the soundtrack for college for me. Now, of course, I graduated from college in nineteen eighty six. Our wonderful producer Spencer I don't think it was born until the 90s, so he doesn't no. know what of what we speak. But I mentioned Spencer because, well, before we get to Spencer, because I want to talk about him, I just want to mention one thing. Dan mentioned MicroStrategies. Listen, I got the opportunity to interview their CEO, Michael Saylor, on Power Lunch a month or so ago, and it was a fascinating conversation. This guy is not dumb in a word. He's an MIT grad. He's basically a rocket scientist, and he's one of these great thinkers. I mean, he's right up there with the Elon Musk's of the world. I mention it because it was in November when they did that secondary sell stock, use the proceeds to buy Bitcoin. Dan can speak to this. This stock was doing nothing for five years, anywhere between $185 a share and $200 a share. Well, guess what? Recently, the stock traded north of $1,300 a share. Why do I mention that? Because that's basically, as we say in the business, a six bagger. It's gone up six times the amount 
of what it was at $200. Bitcoin only basically went up two and a half times. So think about what MicroStrategy has become. It's become a levered play for cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin. And if that's the business strategy that he wants, that's great. But the sun also sets. And if Bitcoin were ever to go back to 20000 uh, MicroStrategies probably does a round turn. I'm just wondering, Dan, does that make sense as a business model? It's literally a proxy for Bitcoin. And it's just like some of those funds that had Bitcoin that traded at a huge premium to the NAV. Um, you know, to me, it doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. I will ask you, please, everybody, go to your machines, your Google machines, or wherever you get co- quotes and pull, in, pull up MSTR. Okay, you're going to see the move that Guy just talked about. Um, but you're also going to go and just if you go back to the, the year 1999, and you look at what happened there, it was in the middle of a mania that stock actually performed better, it went to like 3000, okay, from nothing. Um, so then there was this company, I think had some sort of accounting irregularities or something in the stock absolutely cratered and basically went to near zero. And to Guy's point, this thing flatlined for like 20 years until they came up with this idea to start buying Bitcoin. Again, this is not an indictment of the company or their strategy or the management. I don't know jack about it, but all I know is that they keep tapping equity investors to buy Bitcoin. This is a company, a software company that was not growing sales for years and the stock was just kind of in nowhere land. So you tell me if this was kind of the poster child for the dot-com blow up back in 2000 and you see what's going on right now, um, I suspect that you're going to see this not go particularly well for them because if it's just a Bitcoin holding company, you know, well, I, I don't know. that's what it's become, Danny Moses. Yeah, no, I, I think that people should also be wary, Dan, to that point. Again, things are priced to perfection here, right, in a way, and, and it doesn't take much to create a sell off, not just in stocks, but maybe in something like a Bitcoin. Just imagine if there's a headline at 4.02 p.m. of any kind that says, you know, SEC to review audited financial statements of companies that have bought Bitcoin or anything. By the way, nothing wrong with them doing that. And maybe it's a non-event, but those are the type of things where people need to be ready for and wary. There are, there will be bumps in the road here. And I think to your point, Dan and Guy, that you're making about like, you know, just be, be aware of that. The market does not just go one way. And we talked about this before, and we're going to get into this later about Robinhood. The average age of the Robinhood trader is 31 years old. That means they were 16, 17 years old, the global financial crisis. They have yet to see a bear market. They've seen fits and starts, but the Fed has had their back every single way. And again, dot plot. Dot plot, dot plot. Well, you know, listen, just to wrap up the Bitcoin thing, let's move on because I think we have um, some good takes on this Robin Hood Reddit thing. Um, and before, obviously, we get to the guests, but here's the deal, okay? So can a government regulate Bitcoin? No, they can't, okay? And so we've talked about this now for weeks. But to Danny's point, could they come and the SEC, there's, there's so many different agencies that could kind of regulate companies and what they do with a crypto or a digital currency, that sort of thing. So to, to Danny's point, those are the headlines that you want to keep an eye out for because those are the things that are likely to cause volatility in these equities that are trading off of this currency. And don't think for a second that these are not correlated risk assets. That's kind of my point. We talked about this on multiple occasions in 2018 when the stock market sold off 20% in a straight line in November and December, Bitcoin got cut in half, okay? And then when last year, when the stock market sold off 35%, Bitcoin got cut 
and a half again. Now it's much, much higher, but you tell me if there's a 25% correction in the stock market, do you think that all of a sudden Bitcoin is going to become uncorrelated to a risk asset like the stock market? I don't think so, especially when you consider the fact that all these holders with these diamond hands and all this crap, listen, when you start losing money every which way, you look for opportunities to kind of limit your risk. Yeah. And so listen, real quick, um, I mentioned Spencer, our producer. You know, it's funny. Regis Philbin was a huge Fast Money fan. It was a huge Dan Nathan fan. He actually coined the phrase, Dan knows a lot. We use that drop, as they say on the show. But he had a great producer. The guy's name was Gelman. Well, we have a great producer. His name is Spencer. Now, between Dan Moses, Dan Nathan, and myself, we're about 160 years old. Spencer just turned 22. Why do I mention Spencer? Because he said, you know, guess what, guy? There are eight Hollywood projects right now in the works for this GameStop story, according to something called The Wrap, which I've never heard of, but Spencer clearly has. And he's like, what should the narrative be? Populist story, political story, pandemic, social media. The answer to those questions are yes. Why do I say yes? Because yesterday at those hearings on Thursday, we had questions that required detailed answers. And then the congressmen and women were saying yes or no. Talk to me about the market structure of uh, dark pools is related to pay for order flow. Yes or no? I mean, that's what we're dealing with on Capitol Hill. That's obviously a much more detailed story. But yesterday we had the CEO of Robinhood, the CEO of Citadel, some guy named uh, Happy Kitty or something, the Reddit CEO, a few others talking about market structure and was basically theater. If they wanted to make a movie, Dan Moses, they should have filmed that yesterday. <laughs> well, we're going to have these guests on and I've known Sal Arnock and Joe Saluzzi for years. And funny enough, when the big short came out in, in March 2010, shortly after that, it was May 6, 2010, the flash crash occurred. I called Michael Lewis, and Michael Lewis has talked about this publicly. And I said, Michael, I have your next book. I have your next story. You got you to gotta study the underbelly of high-frequency trading and everything that goes on. And he said, really appreciate that, Danny. Uh, no one really tells me what to write in a nice way, but I'll be back. Maybe five or six months later, uh, he calls back. He goes, all right, who are the characters? Who do I need to talk to? I'm like, all right, you got Brad Katsuyami. You got Ronan Ryan, who these guys have started IEX. And I go, you got to talk to Joe and Sal. You know, they had, they had basically in the process of, and their book came out in 2012, but Joe and Sal were the guys that we would trade with on our trading desk that I could trust, that I knew to not expose our trades into the high-frequency trading world. So we're going to have these guys on to talk about what they thought about the hearings. And I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we listened to those hearings. I mean, it was really hard to listen to. I think, again, I think Guy would agree. I saw him kind of tweeting a few things throughout the day. Danny's quiet on his Twitter machine. Um, it was pretty uncompelling. I think that, um, you know, once again, our Congress people, our elected officials uh, demonstrate they know very little about the things that they call these hearings about. You know, you weren't really sure as a viewer who to be rooting for. I know that there are a lot of different perceived bad guys in this whole thing. I look at the GameStop thing because that's really what this is about here. And if I look at the year-to-date chart and you look at what's going on, it's just a travesty for most retail investors. So anybody trying to kind of say, all right, there shouldn't be any regulation. There shouldn't be any guardrails. Let the people trade what they want to trade, how they want to trade it, that sort of thing. Look at the GameStop chart for the last two months. This is 
a Ponzi scheme of the highest order. And I don't know who um, originated or anything like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, if they were trying to stick it to the man, well, the man ended up winning. They might have taken out one hedge fund that made a very, very bad decision about shorting a single digit stock with high, high short interest. But this is a well orchestrated uh, Ponzi scheme. It failed. And when you have a Ponzi scheme, it's all the the little buyers are the ones who kind of get screwed here. And I think that's what happened. And I don't think anything came out of those hearings yesterday, but I'm really um, excited about the uh, conversation we had with Joe and Sal. Yeah. Before we get to them, I'm going to ask Joe and Sal the question that I'm going to talk about right now, which is, I think that the institutional investors, the hedge funds out there underappreciated the power that retail had together that had grown so much. It's doubled in terms of market size of the volumes in the market. And but what we've seen now is we've seen fits and starts with many stocks in the last kind of couple weeks, three weeks where the short squeezes are very short lived. I'm talking an hour, you know, maybe a day at, at, at the most. So the institutional investor has now woken up. The market has an incredible way of being efficient. But I'm going to ask these guys and get their thoughts on that as well. Yeah. And yesterday I tweeted, and I'm curious to hear from you folks. We actually get a lot of feedback. We get a lot of emails and continue to send emails. We're actually going to do a segment going forward, answer some of the questions you ask. But one of the things I put out there on Twitter yesterday was that Keanu Reeves should play this Vlad cat as well as the Hello Kitty guy at the same time. But you know what? In retrospect, somebody said, no, 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 you're wrong. It should be Adam Driver. That's 100% right. Adam Driver. And by the way, yes. what happened to his sister? She fell off the face of the earth after after that movie with Matt Damon good and Will Ben Hunting. Affleck. Yeah, good. Yeah. Which is a great well, movie, by the way. Well, she flew to California and we never know if he found her. So with that. Well, and that's, you know, another great line from a Led Zeppelin song, going to California with an aching in my heart. And by the way, when we come back, we're going to have a great conversation. There's going to be no aching in my heart with Joe Saluzzi and Sal Arnuck from Themis Trading. Be right back. Now we're going off the tape. We're looking forward to this conversation with Joe Saluzzi and Sal Arnuck from Themis Trading. Sal and Joe, the partners, co-founders, and co-heads of Equity Trading and Themis Trading, They're also the co-authors of Broken Markets, How High-Frequency Trading and Predatory Practices on Wall Street Are Destroying Investor Confidence, released in 2012. Think about that. Pretty timely. Sal went to NYU for his MBA and is a proud Binghamton grad. Binghamton, of course, the cloudiest city in the United States. And Joe went to the University of North Carolina for his MBA and NYU for his undergraduate years. Fellas, thanks for joining us. Danny, take it away. What do you think the most misunderstood part right now is of the plumbing within the financial trading system? Is it the payment for order flow? Is it people don't realize their orders being shopped? Is it what is it you think is the most misunderstood part still? There are several embedded conflicts of interest that distort the routing of order flow in the street. And routing of order flow institutionally, much more so than on the retail side, is extremely complex. Obviously, you have 14 stock exchanges. You have God knows how many dark pools. You have a more recent development called single dealer platforms, which is when you're hooked up directly, just like the retail guys are, to the Citadel, to Susquehanna, to Virtu, and you route orders directly to them. There's such a labyrinth of how to execute with payment for order flow, with complexity, and how the plumbing works and the physics and how they're connected and timing differences and chasing liquidity can make executing for large institutions extremely challenging. Joe, for the guys and gals playing the home game, the flash crash was, I think it was May 6, 2010, started around 2.30 in the afternoon. I want to say it lasted for 25, 30 minutes or so. 
and the stock market had an extraordinarily precipitous decline, not unlike the decline we're seeing with the University of North Carolina basketball program. But we'll talk <laughs> about that in a minute. Can you tell me what happened? Because I got to be honest with you. I've read books. I've tried to research this. Nobody's given me a good answer to this day. You know, I wonder if it was some external forces trying to probe the markets to see what they could do for something in the future, for some nefarious act in the future. Can you get into the grit of this? Well, what we could say is what it wasn't. It wasn't a mutual fund in Kansas City. It wasn't a, a guy in his basement in the middle of London, which are the two culprits or the poster boys that everyone, you got, you got to get Fall Guy, right? They were, they were trying to set up Roaring Kitty as a Fall Guy for this time, and that didn't work. But what really happened, I'll never forget that. I mean, I was sitting at my desk and it was it was insane. And, and the vacuum in liquidity that we saw, and that's really what happened. You just saw quotes disappear in front of your face. And you couldn't, at one point, you couldn't sell anything. And then 10 minutes later, you couldn't buy anything. And the machines all locked up. We were getting phone calls. Clients, I remember saying, buy 100,000 this, buy 100,000 that. You couldn't even buy them on the way back up. It was going so fast. So back then, you didn't have single stock circuit breakers that we have in there now. The overall market circuit breaker was different. They had something called stub quotes. It, there was a lot of nuances that they've kind of fixed since then, which I think will prevent that type of downtrend. But basically, you had a vacuum in liquidity. Everybody just walked away. So if a market maker, coming back to that market maker discussion, if they don't really need to be there, they don't have to be on the quote if they don't, there's no obligation. And I think what you saw was them spread them wide. Quotes went $30 spreads or whatever, it was ridiculous. Penny bid offered at $100. That's what we were seeing. So once it settled down, you know, there was a feedback loop. There was a technological feedback loop that was going on. You know, thankfully, we haven't seen it again. But there isn't really one particular answer other than the market plumbing. The structure of the market really failed that day. There is some inside plumbing. There's basically two, there's more than two tapes, but I'm going to try to keep it simple. There's a public pricing feed that those in the business commonly refer to as the SIP, the Security Information Processor. And that's at a standard, generally slow speed, and it's maintained and run by the stock exchanges. Now, they provide that to the public for pretty much for free. Meanwhile, the same exchanges sell much faster, much more robust, much more information, commercial data feeds to people like Citadel, Virtu, Susquehanna, high-speed traders that is much faster. There's always this difference between the two feeds. If you have one feed, you see the future. If you, if you have the other feed, you're looking at a quote that's already past tense. During the flash crash, when technology was not as robust as it was now, that differential between those two feeds got wider and wider and wider so that there was more and more confusion as to what the price of any security was in the market. And when that happens, all the algorithms shut off. They're like, I, I don't know what the price is. They shut off. And then you see the liquidity vacuum that Joe just spoke about. So there's still many flash crashes in individual securities up and down. When I say flash crash, the stock can be up on a flash crash as much as it can be down every single day. And I think one of the things that's really underappreciated is with your institutional clients or any institutional order flow, the psychological impact of, quote, missing volume, whether it's real or not, <laughs> volume's real or not, that hits the tape, and then a the stock starts moving, these guys are forced to chase. And whether they're forced to chase on the sell side or the buy side, it doesn't matter. They're buying and selling, they're chasing. And I think it has an impact that makes the entire market a little bit unstable. But 
Do you guys see that every single day still in various stocks? We definitely see that. And most of the institutions that we talk to, when they enter positions and they're going to enter a 1%, 2% position in their portfolio and they need to buy 2 million shares or they want to short, uh, you know, what have you, if, if, it's, if it's a hedge fund, they're always thinking, the portfolio manager is thinking in how many days to cover, how many days volume to get into the position, how many days to get out of the position. So they look at the volume the last 30 days on average. You know, it trades 5 million shares a day. Assuming I'm 20% of the volume, it'll take me, and I want to buy 5 million shares, it's going to take me five days to get into this position, five days to get out. When that 5 million shares volume that they're looking at is mostly noise and mostly flickering and high-speed hot potato by intermediaries and market makers, it distorts the real volume and they're overestimating <laughs> what the true volume is. And when they try to chase, they have a, a more outsized price impact than I'm sure they want to have. Well, you guys not only started a firm together, you co-authored a book together. The name of the book is Broken Markets, How High Frequency Trading and Predators Practices on Wall Street Are Destroying Investor Confidence. Great book, by the way. Joe, I'm going to ask you, everything we've seen over the last couple of weeks, I think it's exactly what you guys wrote about in your book. I mean, the investor confidence has to be at an all-time low. Is this just adding fuel to that fire? And how do we get that investor confidence back, Joe? Yeah, no question. And somebody asked me that recently, and I said, it's about confidence. It's about trust in the markets. So no matter what comes out of these hearings, you know, like we said before, we don't think much. What you have to do is gain that confidence back. People need to feel comfortable. And what I sense today in some of these questions from the congressmen is they don't feel comfortable with the payment for order flow system. There's no question that everybody feels that something is funny going on. They don't know exactly what's wrong, but they know that something, it doesn't make any sense when you think about it. Why would somebody pay you and then give you a service on top of that? So they're paying you and they're giving you the service of, of quote unquote, fills and price improvement, and then they pay you for it. So it, it doesn't pass the smell test. I think things like that, you need to talk, you know, we got to figure out a way to deal with payment for order flow. What Sal was talking about with the proprietary exchange data feeds, that's another serious problem that will always, it's a big elephant in the room. There's a lot of data going back and forth that a lot of people can't see. And that's how these high frequency traders made their billions over the years, just sniffing and, and pinging order flow off of these data feeds. So we figured in our book, obviously, we, we talk about a lot of stuff in there, but the one thing that we keep coming back to is you've got to get rid of all payment for order flow. And that includes market makers, okay, as well as what the exchanges do with the quote unquote maker taker system, where they pay rebates to get your flow into there. A better way of doing it is a flat fee. An exchange deserves to make money. They're providing a service, but it's more utility like. So let them charge a tenth of a penny for me to make, a tenth of a penny for me to take. I got no problem paying that. They get their money and they can sell their other products in the meantime. And that way you take out that conflict of interest in the order routers and it solves a lot of problems. So the number one thing, if you ask us, what would you do? get rid of payment for order flow, period. I know this, some people do, but most people don't. Can you tell us who started payment for order flow? Who was the originator of all of this idea? Sure. Believe it or not, going back to the 1990s, a gentleman by the name of Bernie Madoff. Perfect. Was the pioneer of payment for order flow. And the practice has since been elevated in an exponential fashion. Let's talk about that because the Madoff fraud was uncovered in during the financial crisis, right? And then we had that flash class that you guys just kind of talked about that happened in mid-2010. And those were two instances where I think a lot of financial institutions were starting to lose a little 
confidence in the plumbing of the markets, that sort of thing. We spend a lot of time, Guy and I in particular, speaking to retail investors on fast money, that sort of thing. And so it's really interesting when we see periods like we're in right now, where there's tremendous retail investor enthusiasm about markets. And what we just went through over this last month and a half with supposedly Robinhood as this change agent, right, for these new entrants to the markets. And then really quickly, the whole script just flipped, right? Now they're all pissed at Robinhood for what they do. So going back to that question of payment for order flow, you know, we've been talking about this a lot. What exactly did Robinhood democratize? What were they, right, setting out to do? Because they're the ones who basically tore down some walls as it relates to the incumbents, the massive guys, because Schwab and TD, those guys were selling their order floor, and they were charging commissions. The one thing that they succeeded in, and that's Robinhood, is like, fine, we're going to play by the same rules as far as payment for order flow, but we're going to take away hundreds of millions of dollars that you guys receive in commissions. So my question, Sal, what's the innovation here? Could a Robinhood even exist if there wasn't payment for order flow? Robinhood could not exist if there was not payment for order flow. They take in roughly $700 million a year And Vlad actually mentioned in today's hearing, it was the lion's share of their revenue. And I'm sure it's the part that most excites Robinhood's venture capital backers. Cheap commissions are not new. I can go back to 2004, 2005, 2003, and trades were being advertised for Schwab or for someone else for $8.95 a trade for five bucks a trade, which I don't think kills anybody and kills the economics of making a trade for a retail trader. What Robinhood did when they went to zero commission and then forced everyone else who all went to zero commission as well, there's a big difference between Robinhood's platforms and TD Ameritrade, for example. And I don't want to denigrate TD Ameritrade or E-Trade, et cetera, but they're very robust platforms. You want to buy an option. You want to trade options. They do due diligence to make sure you know what you're doing. And when you bring up an option chain, you get robust information depth of book, all kinds of things. On Robinhood, they pretty much, how do I say this, Facebook the crap and social media the crap out of something that probably shouldn't be social media the crap out of. They dumbed it down. If you go through the Robinhood interface, you can actually, you know, do you like this stock? Yes. Here's an option you can buy. Confetti. Okay. Confetti comes down, you bought it. Seven of your friends that you know bought this in the last two days. I mean, it's that same type of social media, get you hooked on it, give you the juice. So it definitely makes Robinhood stand out and have a little bit more of an addiction factor than probably some of the other platforms to trade on. One interesting thing about the Robinhood founders is they were ex-HFT programmers. So these guys were high-frequency traders. They knew the plumbing of the stock market. What we talk about in broken markets and what we talk about every day with the clients, they knew that and they knew how to go around it. They knew how to maximize their profits. So kudos to them, extremely bright guys. But we actually, we, we discovered Robinhood back in 2014, even before they did their first trade. We wrote a piece. We have it on our blog still. And we said, look at this. These guys are offering free commissions. I wonder how that's going to work. And we nailed it right away. And we said, it's going to be payment for order flow. They know the pipes. They know the plumbing. And they did a good job. And they're like South mentioned before, they got a lot of venture cap backers who were pushing them and also defending their payment for order flow model. Their payment for order flow model, which was right out of the gate and was by design. It wasn't by accident. Oh, maybe we'll, we'll start doing this. It was from the get-go. These guys knew what they were doing and they actually hit it. 
It wasn't disclosed like other broker dealers with proper disclosures in a disclosure section on their website. And they kept changing the location of it on the website. And you really had to dig down. And it's part of the reason why they got fined so substantially by the SEC and FINRA at the end of last year. Yeah, that was a $65 million fine. But more importantly, there's a couple myths that I want to kind of dispel out there. And I'd love for you guys to answer this. So one is people don't think their orders are affected in the sense of, oh, it's 100 shares of this, 100 shares of that. Can you guys quantify or tell us in aggregate that the market makers that are paying for this order flow get to see the aggregate order flow? So it's not 100 shares. It's millions of shares of these. I will just use meme stocks as an example, that they're all kind of grouped together. So they're all being heard at the same time. I want to answer that. But the second question I have is this bullshit about price improvement. And the ability to show price improvement relative to what they would have gotten. Can you guys talk to each of those points, please? All right. So I'm going to do the second point first, Danny. The second point first is there's this example. A stock is $12 bid, $12.10 offered. You want to buy it a market, you know, buy 500 shares through, uh, through Robinhood or 100 shares. Robinhood sells the order to a market maker, for example, let's say Citadel. And Citadel fills you at 12.09. So you got filled at 12.09 instead of at 12.10. And they say, you got price improvement. And that number shows up as a price improvement statistic, as a feather in the cap for Robinhood and a feather in the cap for, for Citadel. Look, I provided price improvement. And they brag about that all the time. 33% of the orders in the market today are retail. Uh, 33% of the volume, and that's up from like 15 or 20% a few years ago. When that sheer volume of orders are all sold, all of them, to market makers who intercept them, they don't make it to an exchange. It goes to the market maker first. Spreads are wider than they would be if they went to the exchange. If Robinhood routed those orders, the buys and sells, buy at 1206, sell at 1204, Buy at 1203, sell at 1207, and all these orders made it to an exchange. The bid ask wouldn't be 12 by 1210. The bid ask would be 1203 by 1206. So, A, spreads would be narrower for the rest of the market, as well as for Robinhood retail clients, if the practice of payment for order flow did not exist. That's number one. And then the second thing regarding direction what's the value of this order flow? Danny, you hit the nail on the head. When you're taking, when you're aggregating an entire 33% of the market's volume and you have those tickets in your pocket, the old saying on Wall Street, and Guy, you probably know this, you know, it's easy to, you know, the specialists, why they always make money. It's easy to make money when you have the tickets in your pocket. Well, guess what? Those are an awful lot of tickets to have in your pocket. What is Citadel or any other market maker making? They're seeing market direction. How valuable is that? I dare you to put a value on that. One follow-up there also is another person getting disadvantaged in that example that Sal just said, say it's 12 bid offered at 1210. Suppose you're a professional, you know, a day trader or an active one, and you're using, let's just say, interactive brokers who doesn't use payment for order flow as much. And you say, I'm going to tighten that spread up. I'm going to post an offer at 1208. So now the market is 12 bid offered at 1208. And here comes Robinhood now with their buyer. And guess who? And, and they want to buy that 1208 stock. 
but they can't buy that 1208 stock because the market maker is going to step right in front of it and say, okay, now you fill the 1207 whatever the ridiculous price improvement it is. So the displayed liquidity provider, the person who's trying to help price discovery and tighten up these markets gets disadvantaged. So how does that make any sense when that, that guy's going to turn around and say, you know what, it's not worth it. I'll just go in the dark somewhere. So you're hurting the display liquidity market. So let me ask you guys this back to the retail investor in a way. And, and one of the things that we keep hearing is that they don't care that they're Robin Hood's product. All they care is that they have a slick on-ramp, right? It's something that's very familiar to them. They want to have access to markets. They feel like they're given, maybe they don't want all the flashy tools and all the information, all the stuff that we might've cared about when we were entering the markets back in the day. So that's one thing that I keep hearing. This is just what they want. And they don't really care about things like price improvement or whatever. And one of the things that I bring it back to is I remember hearing this a lot in 2017 during the frenzy around cryptocurrencies. People downloaded very similar. Coinbase was a really slick, easy to use app and they had all the confetti and they had all this stuff and it was very similar in a lot of ways. And people were crossing bid ass. They had no idea what the fees were, right? And they were paying a lot in fees, but they didn't care because they're getting shit rich when it was going up. So I guess the question question is, do they care this time? And will they care in a year from now when a lot of the when the market structure looks maybe a bit different than it is right now? I think that's a great point. So I agree with you. I don't think they care. I don't think the retail traders or Robinhood traders are going onto their web, Robinhood website and looking at 606 reports and saying, what was my price improvement? I don't think they care. And quite frankly, for a retail day trader, for the most part, this market structure is fine-tuned exactly for them. This is probably the best market structure they could hope for. Free trades, they don't care about the price improvement. They get the confetti. They have an app that's easy to use. It's social. It's like gambling. It makes them feel good. It's a, it's a good environment for them. They're not going to care. Joe, a couple of weeks ago, I made the analogy. If you remember when Marlon Brando's in the car with Tom Hagen and he turns to him and says, I know you remember this. You're smiling. The folks can't see it, but I can. Tatalia's a pimp. He could never have outfought Santino. But what I didn't know until just this moment, it was Barzini all along. And I've made that analogy because it's not these Wall Street bets guys and gals. It's not the red. There's somebody pulling the strings that made that trade happen. There's somebody you're going to we're going to find out months, weeks, whatever to come that somebody made a fortune on this GameStop squeeze to the upside. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I agree. It was Barzini all along. I knew it. <laughs> but it was certainly not David versus Goliath. It was not a bunch of retail traders saying, hey, let's get the suits. We're going to get them this time. No. And I agree with you. But the problem is going to be, and the Reddit guy was on the panel today, and I didn't really hear much out of him, but how are you going to access all that information coming through Reddit and all the different chat rooms, whether it was, you know, now there's audio chat rooms, there's all sorts of noise out there. So you don't know, but could it have been a foreign government? Could it have been a large hedge fund based in Florida somewhere? Could it have been? Absolutely, it could have been. And then everything kind of just cycled on itself. And then certainly one of the parts, one of the people that they don't talk about as much are these influencers, these significant social media influencers. Elon Musk was probably the biggest one when he, all he had to do is tweet game stonks, right? And that night, the damn thing went up 200 bucks by the time it opened the next morning. That's a significant move right there. And they're not going to get it. No one's going to ask them what they did. No one's going to ask, you know, 
Mark Cuban, why he thought that the Wall Street Beck guys were doing God's work or whatever he was trying to say in there. So it wasn't a, you know, David versus Goliath. They didn't beat the suits. You're reading these stories in the Wall Street Journal about this poor soul who's out there and he borrowed money. He lost it all. I mean, that, that's what happened. You're not going to beat the big guys. You're not going to win. So, you know, I feel bad for him. I really do. One of the things that's happened in the last couple of weeks, I think the institutions underappreciated the power of this retail group. I don't, you know, think that a lot of hedge funds may have been aware of these chat rooms and so forth, but they never paid it any mind. I think now they respect it because they have to. And it's certainly if you're short a stock, the first thing you're doing now as a portfolio manager is checking to see if it's in any chat rooms before you get run over. But what I've also noticed is how efficient the market is and how quickly you are to stamp that stuff out. And you've seen, not just because GameStop stocks come back down and AMC and all these things have come back to earth, but any of these short run stocks, any of the cannabis names in Canada that ran up, these short squeezes are ending within not just days, I think in hours. And so the game is up a little bit here. So I think we're going to continue to see this. And I think the story will go by the wayside over time and something will happen. But are you guys sensing the same thing that you see as you guys are trading for your clients on a daily basis? When that stuff was going on, we did see some clients who were very concerned about existing short positions. And we were watching and trading actually a few of them that had nothing to do with GameStop. And they were moving. And the people, yes, normally portfolio managers and traders who would never even consider looking at something like that, paid attention. So I think you're right, Danny. I think people are now looking at that. But the game kind of fizzled out pretty quickly, like you said. And you're not seeing those gigantic moves anymore. By the way, the Wall Street bets Reddit guys, this army of retail, uns- I don't mean to disparage them, but let's let's say perhaps largely unsophisticated traders, I don't think they're actually sitting down and coordinating you know, with their keyboards and say, okay, all 4,000 of us go buy now. No. Um, but the fear of them, them getting involved drives other smart hedge funds and institutions who are eager to spot what's going to be the next thing that these guys go after. So then hedge funds and very nimble hedge funds start looking at what's the short interest? Who else has a high short interest? What else has a high short interest and the same long-term base and is starting to break out and who could be potentially caught short? And so it gets blamed on the Reddit Wall Street bets guys, but the Reddit Wall Street bets guys, 95% of them have lost or will lose most of their money. But there are plenty of hedge funds who did quite well trading around GameStop, AMC, at all. Right after this happened, I'm sure it was already happening before, there were algorithms that were being set up by, you know, high-frequency trading-type shops that were looking for the words that were mentioned in these chat rooms already. So after GameStop happened, I saw a couple of emails come out and, like, these are the most mentioned names on the on the chat rooms. These are the most mentioned. So it quickly, people figured out, and maybe we're going to find out who was actually doing it, was ahead of that and, and got that. But anyway, I just wanted to close the loop on that. Yeah, I would just add one thing, though. It's really interesting is that in hedge funds, even the smartest ones, they get lazy, right? And so I think one of the things that we're going to see is that risk managers are not going to allow portfolio managers to short single-digit stocks anymore that have high... It was just a good heads up, a good reminder there. You know, I, I've been in the business a long time. I can't remember ever thinking that um, any smart fundamental people thought that was a good idea. So I would just mention that, you know, quickly that Reddit crowd, once they were activated, they went for silver, right? The SLV and they went 
it didn't work. You, you know what I mean? So so from here on out, it gets a lot harder. And I think it's really important, Sal, the, the point that you make, and this is something that we've been talking about on, on this podcast for the last few weeks, is that the sad thing is, is that it's going to be institutions. It's going to be other hedge funds. These are going to be the big winners of this whole trade. And I'm just wondering if there's anything from you guys who've taken such a close look at a lot of the things that have just come to light in the last few weeks or so, what are the big lessons for like our listeners here to take away if they're just self-directed investors who use these sorts of tools, who are really interested in finding other ways to get ideas, that sort of thing, maybe somewhat non-traditional. Are there anything that you guys would say that that are going to be lessons from this? First of all, for this type of trading, I think it's a lot of fun and it's great for someone to have a play account that they're disciplined with and just play with that play account. But for wealth accumulation, I think you want to go with the tried and true. And that's whether you're dollar cost averaging into Vanguard ETFs or you have money managers like sophisticated gentlemen like yourselves who are helping people navigate. It's common that we say, oh, the retail, you know, everyone says retail and you immediately think Robin Hood and, and this whole legion. That's not retail. Mom and pop in Fidelity, in in cap in capital group, in Janus funds, in in pension fund, New York State teachers, New Jersey Division of Investment, that's the long-term investor. The lesson from this is that maybe the regulator should stop trying to optimize uh, and and try to make it so cheap and so addictive and spread so tight and perfect for you know Mr. Addicted Robinhood guy. And maybe they should work on trying to make the market structure a little bit better for the long-term investors in the forms of institutions. And to follow up on that, Dan, I think you know the way the Robinhood Zero Commission app works, it, it encourages overtrading. And that's probably the biggest mistake a retail investor can make. You don't want to overtrade. You're not coming in and out and in and out of the same name, or even worse, you're averaging down on a losing position. You know, these apps and that zero price, hey, there's nothing, for, no cost for me to get in. Let me give it a shot. Well, that's maybe, you know, people keep saying, oh, you don't want to increase transaction costs. But like Sal mentioned before, what's wrong with a five or seven dollar commission? And in fact, that might discourage that over trading and it might help the retail investor in the end. Joe and Sal, really appreciate you guys coming on. And I hope you guys write another book soon on all this stuff. So thanks, Danny. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for joining us, everyone. That was On The Tape for this week. And heads up, we're going to be having a special bonus episode of On The Tape dropping Tuesday with Fast Money friend, our own Bono and Eisen, B. Icebreaker, one of the great nicknames in financial television. Thanks to yours truly. Talking about his unique experience coming up on Wall Street and now taking the financial media business by storm. Be sure to subscribe in the podcast source so you can catch our latest episodes and please follow us on Twitter at On the Tape Pod. See you folks next week. 